Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner, and you join us on a sunny yet cool day here in the capital, I think it's fair to say, as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. A little later on in today's show, we'll be joined by former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. But first and foremost, I'm delighted to have Chris Moyser alongside me. Chris is the director of Tropiquaria Zoo, which is located in Somerset. Uh, Chris, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. You're very welcome and thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us, Chris, for sure. Um, Normally, we would dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, of course, I feel it's appropriate that we start there. Um, I'm sure you'll agree it has proven to be one of the most significant challenges for leaders in all walks of life of our time, really. Um, But how has it affected you and your operations at Tropiquaria? It's been a very, very major challenge, possibly the biggest I've ever been involved with. Um, It's affected us in 101 different ways. Obviously, all my staff are trained as biologists, so we have some understanding of disease processes and of animal-related disease processes. And we effectively saw it coming. you know, the, the biologists have been saying that uh, coronaviruses are going to make the jump from bats since 2007. So we sort of had it in the background and we'd used bird flu a few years ago as a bit of a, a, a preemptive rehearsal, if you like. But the situation then here with COVID unrolled fairly rapidly once it started. Um, we, we have priorities for looking after our animals. We have legal obligations for looking after our animals, which doesn't mean that we ignore the human side of this, but it means that we try and keep going for the animals. Um, we knew right from the start that we were going to be in trouble financially. Every single zoo in the country was. At the end of it, we had closed for 104 days and then reopened under restrictions which have been going tighter as, as I speak. Um, and that 104 days was, I think, possibly seeing my staff and the way they all work together, some of the most rewarding but frightening days of my life. The whole thing with zoos was that we can't just close the door, turn off the lights and turn up again when someone says you can come out of home. We are under a legal as well as a moral obligation to feed and look after our animals. We have to maintain veterinary care. We have to maintain them at the right temperature. We have to maintain the right light regimes with some of them. We have to maintain the water quality with the fish. So what we had to do is get ourselves into a situation where we could, one, do that safely and two, afford to do it. Our running costs effectively were not reduced. we managed to follow a couple of staff, you know, the kitchen staff, obviously, because we're not running the cafe and the front of house staff, because we're not supervising the shop and seeing people in and taking admission money from them. But immediately, we are losing money because we are losing visitors. Every zoo in this country, virtually, in fact, I think all make their income from gate money. And with no gate, there's no income. 
one or two small grants, etc., may come in, but the, literally 99% of our money is gate money and secondary spend, spend in the cafe and the shop. Suddenly, it's gone. Holidays in the UK and things like Zoopers are so often focused now on the school holiday period. So during lockdown, we lost the first half term. So no, we lost Easter. And then we lost the May bank holiday half term. And those were high visitor number potential days. So we had to have a, a major rethink immediately about finances. Now, in a way, because the team we've got here, our zoo actually got the press release out on the 19th of March saying the zoos are in trouble. I think by ARZO, the British Irish Association of Zoos and Aquarium followed me a couple of days later. And getting that press release out, in fact, it wasn't picked up by the nationals, but the press association carried it and it went out to 20, uh, sorry, no, it went out to 50 local papers. Um, and the support we suddenly got was quite quite quick and quite impressive. The three sort of top people here uh, sat down and had a brainstorming session when we knew about the 18th or 19th we'd close. And we closed on the 20th, uh, that's March. And so straight away we got a GoFundMe request out pointing out that if we can't afford to keep them, ultimately we will have to destroy the animals if we can't rehome them. Um, unfortunately, some of the animal rights groups picked up on that. Oh, they're only in it for the money, etc. No, we're not. Most of us are on minimum wage or thereabouts. Um, but we moved forward. Sorry, the, 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 the animal rights people picked up on it. And we were a bit upset with that because the press release I'd sent out actually said that if we do end up destroying anything, we will probably never be the same again and it will be the worst thing we've done in our lives. Anyway, what happens is GoFundMe started to work and then I've always dabbled a little bit in writing. So I set up a Facebook page for uh, Tropicaria Zoo and I did a daily blog. It became a joke with the staff, but it worked. I put a couple of high spots for the day, a couple of low spots and an animal picture. But after the first week or two, I did a PS at the end and suggested a piece of music. And I never realized till we reopened. I, I knew the blog was hitting up to 20,000 people, but I didn't realize how far it was going mm. and what it did for the funding with GoFundMe because it just drew more people's attention to the fact that here is a small zoo under strange circumstances, struggling to look, at, look after its animals. The staff are potentially putting their lives maybe a little bit more at risk than otherwise because we had to go around various shops to get the animal food locally. Um, for example, big supermarkets, because of panic buying, started to ration. Mm. And even though we could show them the loyalty card, so it showed we bought 15 kilos of apples from the previous week, we could now have a maximum of six apples. So we were having to go around the shops big time. In the meantime, some of our friends were active as well. So we put out appeals locally for donations, food, as well as um, cash. And this did really well. We kept pressure up. Um, RMP, a lovely chap, and Little Granger, um, was supporting us. And he, in conjunction with um, a lovely guy, I forgot his name at the moment, MP for Romford, who's the chair of the All Party Zoo Group, together with the British Irish Association of Zoos and Aquarius signed upon pressure on Parliament to try and make some money available 
and ultimately the Jeffrey grant became available. But in those first weeks before that money became available, we were receiving vast amounts of food donations because the week after we closed, all the restaurants and cafes closed. And locally, they all phoned and said, do you want this? Do you want that? Because these are perishable foods that are just going to waste because we're not going to be open again in a couple of weeks, not the way this is going. And we actually ended up taking on extra freezers. That saved us probably a few thousand pounds, just those food donations in one guy. Um, at the same time, the press side of it, through doing this blog, um, word of hate, it sounds so Star trek but um, it, it just sums up what we were doing really, you know, giving a daily story. Um, that started to take off. I was getting offers and donations from further and further. Um, and some things, obviously, we couldn't use. You know, four tons of avocados when I've got the smallest zoo in the country just didn't seem appropriate. And avocados are actually quite toxic to many animals as well, so we, we couldn't. And someone was a bit upset there. Um, and then one of the national supermarkets offered to help with a weekly donation of a substantial quantity of food. So it started to come together. And at the same time, as the blog's going further and further, we're getting donations in from all over the world. I used to teach many years ago, and some of my students, one is a teacher in Australia, donated £30. Um, somebody else donated something from Brazil and so on. And it brought back contact from people who've not seen for years into the bargain. And the amount of support um, made everything seem much more homely and friendly as well as helping you sort of face this, this national crisis. It does really sort of hit home, doesn't it? The sense of unity and sort of rallying around each other that's come about as a result of this crisis. And it shows as well that people do stand up and are counted during a time of adversity, aren't they? It really does bring mm. out the best in people and in the best in leaders as well. It does. Um, and, and we found things going on we didn't actually know about. One local shop started collecting food for us um, without telling us. And then sort of one night this car drove up with literally um, they sent people to the shop next door to buy dried dog food because I had some rescued raccoon dogs and I had raccoons as well as I live with two Pyrenean mountain dogs, but that's not the story. Um, we had um, suddenly, literally, probably 400 pounds of the dry dog would turn up. And hey, presto, that's that. When things are coming in in that quantity, that starts to reduce next week's food bill mm. big time. Um, and things we couldn't receive as donations, you know, we were coming in as cash uh, to help pay for the electricity bill and so on. And then the grants started to appear. We got small business rates one, and we got a bounce back loan. And then eventually, um, the Defra Zoos Fund, which was set up to support small zoos, uh, support the big zoos wasn't really possible because the, the amount of money the government would have to give them would exceed the limits on supporting UK business. And I'm sure it wouldn't do anything for, for affecting competition with Europe, you know. If we support the car industry, we can export a car to Belgium, probably cheaper than they'll make it there. Um, but if we support a local zoo, we're not going to 
sort of damage to zoos in Belgium's income. So it seems a bit upsetting that the EU funds stop the big zoos receiving support. And they are still in trouble. Um, you know, the, name, the likes of Twycross, Chester, London have gone very public with it. And um, the latest zoo support from governments um, is trying to look at special cases and ways around this. But that, that's a matter for them, and hopefully that they, they will achieve something. Um, there's a little bit of background here that might be relevant. And one of the reasons I was pushing it right from the start, from the biological point of view, what you've got to bear in mind is that our zoos are now mini Noah's Arcs, if you like to use a derelism. Um, and we have animals here that are critically endangered in the wild. Critically endangered is the last stop on, on that sort of hierarchy before extinct. And I got visions. We already think that in Madagascar, ringtail lemurs will be extinct in 20 years or less. Because what's happening is the groups are too small in the parks, the parks are too far apart. Tourists that visit Madagascar can pay and go and see them, see a group, think everything's hunky-dory. What they don't know is this. The groups are too small to genetically support themselves. And where the groups of lemurs leave the park and go into the wild outside the park, they become quickly bushmeat. And although most of the group may get away, if one or two are killed, we knew the females, if they got back into the park, would miscarry. But what we didn't know is they wouldn't get fertile for the following year. So it's a critically endangered species. But of course, what will happen if the infrastructure of that country is damaged too badly by COVID and starts to fail? Rather than let their families die, people will go back to eating bushmeat. And if that means breaking into the park to do it, so we could end up with a situation that the species predicted to become extinct in 20 years could be extinct in two. And if we let them die out in UK zoos, because we didn't, and sort of European zoos and American zoos, because we prioritized humans totally beyond the um, animals in zoos, then presuming if we eventually find a vaccine for this or learn to live with this disease, we could then be in a situation where our grandchildren are saying, we used to have loads of those. You know, I've got records from my granddad's who saying that they actually gave them implants to stop the breathing. And then just you let them die out in the two years that COVID affected you. Now, we don't want that happening on our shift. We want to make sure that we can keep these animals. I mean, I'm probably the smallest and poorest zoo in the country, but I've got three species of fish here. I'm the only one showing them in the UK. They're from Mexico. They are extinct in the wild. Um, so if we go down, even though we do what we could to rehome those, mm. we could be highly instrumental in losing literally 30% of the world population of an endangered species that currently only exists in zoos. And looking at it from a humanitarian viewpoint as well, there was an idea that I was playing with. Um, and we, it, it's come to fruition. As a zoo, we are one of the safest places that visitors can visit. I do hope I don't regret saying that. Because we have a lot outside. We're not really breathing other people's air, whether you're wearing a mask or not. We have 
keepers who, by virtue of what they get on their hands when cleaning out, are, I hesitate to say, almost world experts on hand cleaning, on knowing which products to use. And we are already, through basic college training, aware that there are a range of diseases that can be passed back with the between humans and animals. So, um, we're pretty good on our antisepsis. We're pretty good on our cleanliness and using the right product. And as I say, we've got places outside where people can social distance, but still still see other people in the distance and can socialise in the distance, you know, providing we comply with whatever the current footage is between mm. groups who aren't supposed to be talking to each other, etc. Um, and we're a form of escape. You can come to see us and forget about what's going on. It's not like a walk to the park and back where if you're in a city, you may see 14 now to wash your hands posters and three keep your social distance posters and then a warning at the entrance of the park um, reminding you subliminally all the time. Yeah, we do have social distancing footage and we do have alcohol gel dispensers. But we also have play equipment that children can still use. We've got a lot they can't use, but we've got play equipment that children can still use. So, you know, when it, it's happened, I actually have to brief the staff now on how to deal with Visitors are upset. We reopened, we reopened with, on the 4th of July, reduced visitor admissions. Uh, during the school holidays, it was necessary to phone to book or to book online, um, in line with virtually every other zoo in the country. And, sorry, that's one of my parrots in the background there. Um, the, the visitors are actually appreciating being out. Here in Somerset, the area of Somerset I'm in, it, it is highly reliant on, on tourists. Mm. And the tourists in Maine tend to come to us because they've got Butlins, which has got, when it's normally functioning, a big nightlife. We have the West Somerset Railway, which I think exceeds the length of track of Seven Valley, so it's the longest in the country by a mile or two. And Dunster Castle. Unfortunately, Butlins is virtually bed and breakfast at the moment because they can't trust people and the new bar rules anyway that stop the entertainment at night. Um, Dunster Castle, you've got to have been in the National Front, I mean the National Trust site, if I'm making that mistake, um, for several years and book online to, to get in. And the railway, unfortunately, furloughed most of their engineering staff straight away at the start of it. Some of them got other jobs and they can't even get the track fit enough now to get the railway functioning again. So effectively, we are possibly the main functioning tourist attraction here with nine-tenths of what we normally do carrying on. So it's a bit of a feeling of responsibility that we've got. And the fact that people can phone, yes, yes, you can come in, absolutely fine, you know, as long as you're not one group of six, um, or you're all from the same family if you are, uh, or an education family, then they're actually very grateful to be able to come out. You raised some important points there, particularly with regard to that idea you mentioned a little bit earlier on that zoos are an escape for people because what this pandemic has certainly done and also in a leadership context as well is it's really thrust the importance of mental health and well-being back into the limelight, not just in terms of trying to provide reassurance and dispel worry during this time, but also the social isolation elements of the lockdown and just that sort of trauma of what's going on. I mean, an escape sometimes is exactly what people 
need. Exactly. Exactly. And I've got some of my younger keepers who can do an animal presentation. They can tell the visitors about this animal, where he comes from in the wild and where he comes from in captivity. And in the case of that parrot, where he may be going tomorrow, i.e. the taxidermist. Um, the joke almost. Um, this, this, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move. Hang on. Um, the We are sort of coping with the fact that we're getting visitors from areas which have been hit very badly. At this point in time, where some have had some cases, some deaths, but not on the national level, a very great number. Um, and we're just having to make sure that everybody is aware of that. Um, both directors, Jane, my other director, um, is has been a special needs nurse and a theatre nurse. And I've sort of looked after delicate students in uh, her 16 education. Um, in the past, I'm used to dealing with traumatised people, but not in mass. In fairness, we haven't had too much upset. Uh, we've had a couple of people get upset with us. I've insisted on uh, details for track and trace, etc. And they're convinced it's their right not to have to do that. Um, and they can sometimes get a little bit funny, but a couple get funny about face masks as well. But that hasn't been uh, a major issue. But as I say, we have been trying to prepare the staff. If we do get someone with a total breakdown with a recent bereavement, um, how to sort of cuddle without cuddling, if you like, to, to be able to sort of reassure and, and actually say here today, now, what's your favourite animal? Um, which might sound a base route way of dealing with it, but it actually, uh, the missed experience we've got so far, um, seems to be appreciated and seems to help some people. And just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, Chris, I am conscious that we are short of time. I would like to talk about the uh, the future because we are entering uncertain times for the industry as well, of course, given the new restrictions that are now in place. Um, we know that over the course of the next year, we'll have to continue to adjust to the new normal and how we live and how we work. But what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at Tropicaria over the next 12 months? And indeed, where do you see the zoo being this time next year? Well, first of all, hopefully here, um, there are zoos which have not made it. There are some which will announce shortly that they are not going to be continuing. And there are two already living coasts in Torquay that won't reopen, that's public knowledge, and Ventura in, I think, Hertfordshire that won't reopen, again, public knowledge. I'm aware of a couple of others that won't. Um, those of us that do survive will be doing everything we can to rehome the animals from those establishments. Um, as far as Tropic Quarry is concerned, being small, our running costs are not nominal. And I have this sort of theory that we should try and persuade local areas to support their local zoo. We are a source of knowledge. You know, um, I know some zoos don't, but we do go out to things like supermarkets and we find big spiders and bananas. Um, people who accidentally bring a lizard back on holiday from Spain. But now they're not a lizard or something. Um, and we're quite interested in that way. We use our knowledge to support the community. And I'm hoping the community may support 
swallows in that way. It isn't necessarily coming and visiting. It could be sponsoring an animal. It could be coming and purchasing the Christmas presents from the zoo shop. Most zoos would be happy to let you just use the shop if you're something possible. It supports them. Um, so I think we will see a major evolution in zoos. And sadly, I don't want to say it, but I think we will lose some of the big zoos. And I'm hoping that it will be minimum numbers if we do and that we can successfully rehome um, all the animals so that we don't have to destroy mm. anything for anything other than medical reasons. Um, so I'm hoping we will be here. I think financially, and I hope my co-directors and community things, that we are possibly in a better state than some of the small things. But we are not in a good state. The latest VAT announcement, by the way, has gone down very well because that really does help us. Um, and it helps us over months. And it means that the public see as well, if, if they want to support us, that more of the money they're giving to us is actually getting to us. And I, I, I think the liquor industry isn't too happy with, with it. They think it could be part of the um, and the hotel chains. Um, but it does make us more competitive with Europe as well. Sort of more international travel starts to happen again. Um, I'm not sure where we'll be in a year. Coming back to your original question, Scott, the the issue is one of what other changes will we have, and how will we accommodate them? If this virus mutates, oh God forgive if we get a different pandemic moving in. As a biologist who watches them, you know, I am aware that there's evolving bird flu in China, and there's a, a pig flu as well. Well, we can close the borders and stop the pig flu. We can't stop the bird flu because the wild birds will bring it in on the migration paths. And there's a direct migration path through from China going right across Europe, ending with us with some of the water birds. And guess which birds are the best ones at carrying bird water birds. But if we do get another pandemic, this one will at least train us in ways we wouldn't have thought of before in order to be prepared. Um, we don't know how this COVID is going to survive this winter either because there are things called viral successions. You know, kids go back to school in September, the cold start. Then we get the RSV, the respiratory virus, just before Christmas, and the flu kicking in afterwards, where each holds the other back. We don't know whether COVID's going to slot into that sort of hierarchy and maybe back down a bit as RSV takes over, or back down a bit as a major flu epidemic or whether it's just going to make them a lot worse and we end up with horrendous um, mortality rates again. So there's a lot that's unpredictable. I hope I don't regret saying it. One good thing at the moment is as far as we're aware, it very, very rarely jumps into domestic animals or zoo animals. And we've got no evidence of it ever jumping back again into humans. As far as we know, no one's been affected by a cat or a dog uh, or by... Um, as an animal who were working close to them, which right at the beginning of March, we really wondered about that. By now, if it was going to happen, it's almost something would have happened. Certainly going to be an interesting time over the uh, the next uh, few months for zoos all over the country, and let us hope that 
of course, as many of them do last as possible, but also most importantly, that when there are casualties, the animals in the zoos can be rehomed, as you rightly say there. And there are still a great many variables as well, as you say, in the way that the pandemic could also go. So let us just keep our fingers crossed that the trajectory is going to be positive from here, albeit not in terms of cases and fatalities, of course. In fact, just given how uncertain this period is i almost think it would be well worth welcoming you back onto the program chris just given how enlightening it's been having you on this afternoon to just catch up and reassess exactly where we are in say several months time actually, uh, that would actually be good fun um providing i'm here um, still but yes no it, it, it i think it, it will be interesting and and i think um you know, it was one of the reasons i started to do a blog on the basis that we knew during the lockdown things would change during it. And I hope I've reflected that in some way. And I, I think we've still got changes that we, we can't predict and we will see. So, yes, um, hopefully I won't be slowing my words on anything major I've said so far. Let's certainly hope not, Chris. I've really enjoyed having you joining us on the programme this afternoon. It's been a thoroughly um, enjoyable experience. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again, Please do continue to take care and stay safe above all with all still going on. Keep well. Bye. I would reiterate that message to all of our listeners this afternoon as well. Do please continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, I was speaking on today's programme to Chris Moyser, Director of Tropicaria Zoo in Somerset. Um, Next up on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, having been elevated to the Upper House of Parliament in August 2015 and enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, having served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years and occupied a number of senior positions in the cabinet of former Prime Minister Tony Blair. I do hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett and that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from 
not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care 
system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and 
chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. 
we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's 
the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer, where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so i very much if i were in government and i always think of things in that context what would i do if i were in government i would be on the side from 
the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. 
Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up 
in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.